soil and the deep roots that it would be good for us to really to explore the gospel a little more deeply. What is the gospel? What is that that we put our roots down deeply into or is putting its roots down deeply into us, maybe it's better to say. And here at Lakeside, we've said many times, we never leave the gospel, right? The, the gospel is not just a prayer that you pray at summer camp or when you're a kid or at some point in your life and then I've received the gospel and now I'm moving on to other things. The gospel is the whole Christian life. The gospel is literally everything is the gospel. And you never leave it behind. And so I felt at the end of that message that maybe it would be good just to take a break and just have a little refresher on a few things that the gospel is so that we can get a sense of how deep the roots of the gospel go. And that's for us to be able to communicate the gospel so that as I go through these 13 points, you can start to think for yourself, do I really understand the gospel in that context? Do I understand the gospel in that particular way? And can I communicate to that to people who might need to hear it in that way? So you can think about it that way. And you can just think about it for yourself in terms of, you know, do I really understand this idea? When Paul gets up there and says that the gospel is everything, that, that it applies to everything, that, that all, it encompasses everything, do I really understand what that means? And so it's going to be a bit of a two-part sermon, this sermon on this 13 points, and then next sermon is going to be heavy on application of how you apply the gospel to literally every situation in your life and every condition of your heart. So it is 13 points, and I'm going to go through them sort of as quickly as I can to get done. Um, in 30 minutes, and, and that's kind of on purpose. You might have asked, well, why didn't you split it up and do five and five or something like that? But the point is, is that I want to show you how these things build. And I could have done 13 more points, and then 13 more points, and then 13 more points, because there are a 100 facets to the gospel. There's 200 facets to the gospel. We are honestly not going to fully explore the gospel except in eternity. That's where we're going to finally get a chance to fully understand the gospel. But these 13 points I picked because I felt these are the ones that we at least have to fundamentally understand in terms of what the gospel is. And I'm using as my text 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11 to kind of base it off of because that's where Paul is talking about the gospel. And then we'll go out to other verses as well. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, the word of God says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, uh, that's Peter, that's his other name, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Okay, that, that's the gospel. Paul, Paul says, I'm reminding you of the gospel. So there it is. You want a summary of the gospel? That's a summary of the gospel. And every 
recount every telling of the gospel is a summary. Even after I get through these 13 points, it's just going to be a summary. You have to reduce the gospel because you can't encompass it all. And I've given you that outline there and you can make these notes. And what I want to do is, is basically do these 13 points on what the gospel what the gospel is. And Paul says here that he wants to remind us about the gospel and goes on to say it is of first importance. And what he means when he says it's of first importance is exactly what it sounds like. It's the center. It's the core. We have to know this stuff about the gospel if it's going to have an effect in our life and we're going to be effective out there as sowers in the world. So point number one, let's go. Point number one, the gospel is Christological. And that's just a fancy way of saying that it pertains to Christ or it's Christ-centered. In other words, when we think about Christianity and we think about the gospel, it never departs from the person of Jesus Christ. The good news of God is intrinsically tied to the person of Christ. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later on. The good news is not just that there is a God. There's some God out there who wound up the universe like a clock and it continues to run. You know, that's not good news. And the good news is not even less sort of an impersonal pantheism, right? Like the universe is God, or you're God, or I'm God, or the world is God. That's not good news. The gospel is good news because of Christ Jesus. It is about Jesus Christ. And his name appears and is in all of Scripture, Old Testament and New. In Matthew, Jesus calls, or Jesus calls himself Emmanuel. God with us. In John, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, 6. He's the Word of God. In John 1, 1. In the sermons of Acts, there is no other name but Jesus given under the Son by which we are saved. In Romans and Ephesians, Jesus is the last Adam who the Scriptures bear witness to. In Revelation, Jesus is both the Lion and the Lamb, and the only He can open the seals of the scroll held in the Father's hand over and over and over and over again. The Bible is about Jesus because the gospel is Jesus. It's Christ-centered. And it's not just Jesus, the person that is the focus of the good news, but also his death and resurrection. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. And at the very start of his letter, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. Paul was there for 18 months in the city of Corinth, and he said, I didn't know any, I didn't preach anything to you guys for 18 months except Christ and Christ crucified. That is the centrality of the gospel. Paul had, and he, he preached every day, okay, for 18 months. He didn't just preach on the Sabbath or on Sundays. He preached every day. So let's just start an 18 month series just on Christ and Christ crucified. But that, but Paul could say that everything that he talked about was about Christ and Christ crucified. And so this makes Jesus the very heart of the gospel. He is the treasure that is buried in a field, and whoever finds him would sell everything to acquire Christ Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. He is the source of our joy. Not what he does for us, but him. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. And the gospel does not have Christ at its center simply because he's the nice God-man that helps us when we're broken down by the side of the road. Christ is at the center because he's the Messiah. He's the promised one who died and rose again and whom everything lives and moves and has its being, it says in Acts 17. So the gospel, first and foremost, is centrally Christological. It's about Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. And that leads into the second point. In that sense, the gospel is theological. And what I mean by that, it's about divine things. It's about spiritual things. It's about God, if you want to think of it that way, God the Father. So the gospel is theological. In, in, 
And what I mean is, is that it's satisfying the broken relationship or the chasm or the spiritual wrath that has to be dealt with. There is a divine problem that we have with our Maker. We have rebelled and we have sinned and we have rightfully and justly deserved His wrath because we have made ourselves God instead of treating Him as God, as He so rightly should be. And so what is taking place in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus is accomplishing something spiritual. It's not just about Jesus, this person who lived and died for our benefit, but that that life and that death and that resurrection is accomplishing something theological. It's accomplishing something spiritual. It's accomplishing something that has profoundly gone wrong between us and our Maker. And so we can't minimize this or we rob the Gospel of its power and our need for it. The biggest problem that God has to overcome is not that the world is broken and that we need rescuing from it. Right? The, the good news of the Gospel is not that the world has gone sideways and we are in turmoil and sin and pain and God has a plan to redeem us and save us from our brokenness and our wretchedness in this world. Lots of people phrase the gospel that way, and that's not wrong, because God is doing that. He is a redeemer, and he is a healer, and he is rescuing and redeeming us out of this broken world. But that's not the fundamental problem, because if you, if you say the gospel that way, then it makes the gospel about us. And it diminishes or it trivializes the fact that the gospel and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was about solving a problem that we had with the wrath of God. In Genesis, it is God who brings death into the world. It is God who curses the world. It is God who is angry. And there is a problem between us and our Maker that has to get fixed at a theological level, if you will. The thorniest problem that God has is that our sin is unholy rebellion against His perfect holiness, and it makes us the just recipients of His wrath. But God has a solution for that, and it's called atonement. Jesus is the Father's plan to take care of our own personal sin that invoked his wrath. And so we have these things behind the gospel of God and sin and wrath and death and judgment and atonement, and that is what makes the words of 1 Corinthians 15.3 so profoundly theological. Christ died for our sins, Paul says. The reason, the problem that needed fixing was our sins, and we could consider... Texts like Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for life, to life for our justification in Romans 4. Or Christ died for the ungodly in Romans 5.6. Or the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. Or Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, excuse me, to bring you to God, 1 Peter 3.18. Or as Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians 15:2, by this gospel you are saved. And so we cannot fail to understand, and some of this you may seem as obvious, but we can't depart from this reality that the gospel is doing more than just helping you fix your marriage, right? The gospel is doing more than just, you know, maybe getting you on the right track or helping you not swear as much or give up smoking, Right? The gospel is doing more than just trying to fix your life. The gospel is mending a fundamental chasm between you and your Savior, your Creator. God is angry at our sin, and Jesus has to rectify it, and the Gospel does that, the good news that He lived and died and was resurrected and that we can trust in Him and be saved. So the Gospel achieves 
incredibly profound theological realities for us. But the gospel is also biblical, and I'm going to pick up the pace as I go along. The gospel is also biblical. Paul says at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4 that Christ died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now Paul here doesn't say exactly what Scriptures that he's referring to. He doesn't, he doesn't quote any Scriptures, but there are lots of places Paul could have gone. And I'm sure he means all those Scriptures that the Gospel of Luke alludes to being taught by Jesus Himself with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. It says there, He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, says in Luke 24. So Jesus is walking along with two of his disciples, not the twelve, but two other disciples, and he, and he shows them in the scriptures, which for them was the Old Testament, all the scriptures speaking of him. The, the whole Old Testament is talking about Jesus. The gospel is biblical. Paul could have been talking about Psalm 16 or Isaiah 53, or we have in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews that traces out some of the ways in which the Old Testament Scripture announces the obsolescence of the Old Covenant and the emergence of the New Covenant. And we have a better tabernacle and a better priesthood and a better sacrifice in Jesus. You know, Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus taught, that the revelation of God's good news is right there in Scripture. Right? You remember two parables ago. You can't miss this point in the parables. Right? The man, the rich man was calling across the chasm as he's in Hades and he's looking at paradise. And he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers. And his answer was, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. The gospel is biblical. It's there in the scriptures. It's not something that the Apostle Paul made up. It's not something that the disciples came up with after Jesus died. It's not something that this backwater rabbi decided that he would put on himself. The gospel is in all of scriptures and all of scriptures speak to the gospel. So wherever you are reading in your Bible, it's telling you something about the Gospel. The Gospel is distinctly biblical. And so we can trust Scripture to do its Gospel work in our life and in the life of others. And so you can give people Scripture and trust that they will see the Gospel by the Holy Spirit in the Scripture that you give them. Fourthly, it's historical. So first, in 1 Corinthians 15, it specifies both Jesus' burial and resurrection. The burial testifies to Jesus' death, and the appearance after his burial testifies to Jesus' resurrection. And so his death and his resurrection are tied together in history, and we can't lose the importance of this as we trust in and believe in the gospel. This is a historical event that took place. The one who was crucified is the one who was resurrected. The body that came out of the tomb had the same wounds as the body that went into the tomb. You remember his doubting Thomas wanted to make sure of. And the way in which we have access to the historical reality of the gospel, to the historical events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is exactly the same way in which we have access to almost any historical event. We know about this and we trust in this through the witness of those who were there and by means of the records they left behind. That's how all of history is known. And that's why Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 explicitly says in our text, as he reminds them of the gospel, he says, this is of first importance, this is the gospel, Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected, and then he actually explains that there are credible sources to this historical event. Verses 5 and 6, he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of here who are still alive. You can go and check out this story. The gospel is a historical reality. 
And second to that, the good news of the gospel is intrinsically bound up in the historical person of Jesus. And I think D.A. Carson illuminates the best way with this thought experiment or this example. Imagine asking a Muslim imam a hypothetical question. Could God have given his final and greatest revelation to anyone besides Muhammad? And if the imam fully understood the question, he would probably answer, yes, of course, Allah, blessed be his name, can do whatever he wants to do. That's how the imam would answer. The revelation is not Muhammad's, it's Allah's, but we believe that Allah gave it to Muhammad. That's what most imams, I think, would answer. In other words, there's nothing intrinsic about Muhammad to the revelation of Allah except that he was chosen to receive the revelation from Allah. But if you ask the same question of a Christian pastor, you would word it this way. Is it possible that God could have given his final revelation through anyone besides Jesus of Nazareth? And in Christianity, the question is not even coherent. It, it makes no sense. Because Jesus is the revelation. The revelation that entered into history in the incarnation of the person, Christ Jesus, who lived a perfect life we couldn't live, who died an atoning death, and who was resurrected to show that the promise of the Father was secure and that death was defeated. As John puts it in his first letter, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it. Okay, so the gospel is rooted in history. It's a historical event. The gospel is deeply historical. It has to be. Paul goes on in this letter to say, if this didn't happen, then we of all men are most to be pitied. If this is not historical, if this didn't happen, first of all, we're blaspheming God because we're talking about Jesus and it didn't really happen, and we have no hope because we've been putting our hope in Jesus. And so the gospel has to be historical or it's nothing. Fifthly, it's personal. Because the Bible is not deistic or pantheistic, because it's centrally Christological and theological, that means that it's also personal. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not just historical events. The gospel is not merely theological in the sense that it organizes a lot of theological precepts. The gospel actually sets out the way of individual salvation, of personal salvation. Trusting in the finished work of Jesus is a personal act. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. Each and every individual one of you, Jesus died for. Jesus died for me personally. If there was nobody else on the planet, Jesus still would have died for me. If there was no one else that needed saving, Jesus still would have died for you. Because the gospel is personal. God is not a pantheon. God is not just a clockmaker of the universe. There is a real relationship between God and his creation. There is a real relationship between Jesus and us. And that relationship takes its form in the gospel that the Son of God came and died for us. The gospel is about something offered to each and every person individually. And Paul begins his text here in 1 Corinthians just to keep it rooted in the text here. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. Paul is saying this gospel is personal. You heard it, you received it, and by it you are saved. And that's important for people to hear. When you're out there sowing the gospel, they need to know that this is 
really personal, that God knows them, that God cares for them, that God, before the foundation of the world, knew who they were, knew the situation of their life, and before they even had a chance to be born, before they had a chance to rebel or to sin, all the sin that God knew was coming, he sent his son to die for them so that he could take care of the sin that he already knew they were going to commit. It is deeply personal, and people need to hear that. Paul's preaching a gospel that accomplishes something personally in those that hear and fall respond to it. He even talks about it himself, about himself in verse 10, right? He says that I I was persecuting the church, but he says in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul says this gospel came to me by God's grace, and it was not wasted. I responded to it. This is a personal thing that's going on for each and every one of us. A historical gospel that's not personal is just an intellectual curiosity, Right? I mean, we can go back and we can study you know, ancient politics and things that have gone on. And if something is historical but not personal, then it's just a curiosity. A theological gospel that can't be received by faith or be transformative and actually accomplish its purpose is merely physical, philosophical. I mean, if you just read the Bible and say, okay, so there's a creator and his people rebelled and you know, there's some sort of story here about God and men and you, know, you read it like a... You know, you read it like the Marvel comics, you know, Thor and, you know, whatever. You know, if there's this theology, but it's not personal, then it's useless. It doesn't actually save us. And so it has to be more than historical and more than theological. It has to be personal. But more than that, the gospel, the roots just keep getting deeper. The gospel is universal. It excludes no one. If we were to step farther into 1 Corinthians 15, we find Paul demonstrating that Christ is the new Adam in verses 22 and 47 to 50. And as the new Adam, all of those who trust in him are now considered one seed or one people, the covenantal people, citizens of his kingdom. Just as Adam is the father of all of mankind, ethnically or physically, so Jesus, as the new Adam, unites everyone who trusts in him as one tribe spiritually. There's no room in the gospel for racism or sexism or classism. The gospel is universal in the sense that it is open to everybody equally and all can come to the gospel and receive the same grace and redemption and forgiveness. It's not universal in the sense that it transforms and saves everyone without exception because there's many people who choose to remain in the old Adam. There are people in the world who have made a decision that they will stay in the tribe of the old Adam and not move over to the tribe of the new Adam. And those people are not included with Jesus. But the gospel is universal in the sense that it encompasses everybody. Romans 1.16, Paul again speaking of the gospel, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So Paul's saying it's open to everybody. It's not just a tribal situation. God is not just a tribal God. He's not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of the whole world. And the gospel is available to everyone. The gospel, and some people need to hear that too, and sometimes we need to hear that, that, that we are part of the gospel, that it's open to us, because we think that we can exclude ourselves sometimes. So, you know, surely there's people better than me that the gospel is open to. No, it's open to everybody. I'll get more into application next week, though. Got to keep going here. Seventh, the gospel is legal. The gospel is legal in the sense that it satisfies the law of God that must be satisfied. And this is so important that we understand this. When Jesus Christ died and was resurrected, something took place that satisfied the law of God. It's a legal situation, and it's covenantial. It's secure, and it's a God-sided covenant. 
We are declared not guilty by the gospel and we are bound by God's own word to himself. And we could look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14 to see what the gospel is accomplishing legally. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so this is done. It's nailed to the cross. God's law and our debt to his wrath is satisfied. And it's important that we know this. It's important that we live this out if we are children of the gospel, if we're children of Christ, if we have the gospel. This is so assuring to us to read this and know that the gospel is legal. It's not just a historical story. It's not just a nice rabbi who had good things to say. What Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection firmly closed the books on our case with God and our sin. It's done. It's transacted. And in that, God bound himself in covenant to his own promise. You could go back to Genesis 15, and I don't have time for it right now, but if you go back to Genesis 15, you see this in the Old Testament. Abraham and God are having a conversation, and God wants to covenant with Abraham about his future, about this promise that he's made to Abraham. And he gets Abraham to, uh, to you know, cut a ram in, a bull in half, and cut a ram in half, and cut something else in half, and then I think finally it's a bird. I don't know how you cut a bird in half. There's not much left, but he cuts these things in half, and he puts them on either side. So there's this, there's this bloody aisle, because this covenant is made in blood, and there had to be death to atone for the sin. And there's this aisle, and this is normally how people covenant. If two tribes were going to covenant, they go through this ceremony. But the interesting thing is, when night falls, God puts Adam to sleep, and when Adam awakes, God is there as fire. And normally both chiefs of the tribes would walk through that, that aisle between the pieces to seal the covenant. But in the case in Genesis 15, go back and read it, it's amazing. Only God goes through. God covenants with himself. This is my word. I won't break it. I won't be unfaithful. And Abraham... I'm not going to make you walk through here. Because you know what I know about you, Abraham? You're going to break your word. You're going to be unfaithful. There's no sense you walking through here. That will only weaken the covenant. This is a covenant between God and God about us. It's fantastic. Go back and read it. But we see it in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, a young pastor. And he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, in, in uh, sorry, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. He says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Those are those that are under the old Adam. But if we, under the new Adam, are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What's Paul referring to there? I'm pretty sure he's got Genesis 15 in mind. God can't break covenant with his own word. Okay, so the, the gospel is legal. It has sealed something. Eight, it's transactional. Not only is it legal and it seals something in the law of God and in covenant with God with us, it's also transactional. There is an exchange that we have to understand. This element of the gospel is so important to understand. Jesus takes our sin and we receive Jesus' righteousness. It's called the great exchange quite often. 
The good news of the gospel is not just that we have been declared legally not guilty. And that's quite often where a lot of our gospels stop, right? We think, okay, Jesus died and was resurrected to forgive us of our sin, and we are set free from the bondages of sin, and we are no longer guilty. Hallelujah! And then our gospel just kind of sits there for years and years and years. And we never realize that there's more to the transaction than just being declared not guilty. But in fact, after that, we receive a new righteousness. We actually receive Jesus' righteousness. And maybe we don't go there because the news is just so good that we can't get our heads around it that we actually inherit the righteousness of the Son of God. That's our righteousness now. It's just staggering. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's not just that we're declared not guilty. We actually become the righteousness of God. He gives us his righteousness. There's transaction that takes place in the gospel. We're not just marched into court and the judge declares us not guilty. The judge then comes down around from his desk and he pins a purple heart and a cross of valor and, uh, you know, whatever other kind of award that you could receive on our chest. And he gives us the keys to the city and the mayor's there and he says, all of this is yours. And Bill Gates says, I'm adopting you. You're now my son. You know, like we get it all. We get it all. And then you go out of the courthouse and there's a parade for you. It was the parade that was supposed to be for Jesus. Because he deserves a parade. But the parade that Jesus was going to get is now your parade. That's the exchange that takes place in the gospel. The gospel is transactional. You're not just declared not guilty. You get all the blessings of Christ and all the righteousness of Christ. You get the Medal of Honor. You get the Purple Heart. You get the parade. You get the inherited into the best family in the universe. You get it all. And so the gospel is transactional. And that is so profoundly important for us to know. That it's more than just being set free of your guilt. It's receiving the righteousness of Christ. And why is that important? Because of the next point, point nine. Because unless we really grasp that we inherit and get the righteousness of Christ, then the gospel won't be fully transformational. But the gospel is transformational. If you look at our text in 1 Corinthians again, as Paul is explaining the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15.10 we're down to. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. And we talked about that. It was personal to Paul. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though, and he immediately corrects himself, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The gospel that Paul received, not in vain, but received it personally, began a transformational work in the Apostle Paul. Okay, he was going around speaking murder against the church. He was capturing Christians and bringing them to be stoned by the Pharisees. He was throwing churches and preachers in jail. Okay, And then the Lord came to him. The gospel came to him, not in vain. And all of a sudden, he says, and I started, to be, I started working, essentially, all the stuff that Paul did. Right? He started working, doing all this gospel, kingdom work. I was transformed, and I did all of this. I've, I've done more than any of those other apostles. And if you read 2 Corinthians, he talks about how foolishly he speaks there, just, just recounting all of the work that he did. But then he corrects himself there and here, and he says, it, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God. It was the work of the gospel. It transformed me. It changed me. 
I am not the person I was. Paul knows that it wasn't him working, it was the grace of God. And the important thing to understand about this for our own transformation is that we have the righteousness of Christ, that the gospel is transformative, and we'll talk more next week applicably about how that happens. But understand this. Don't let this be lost on you. The gospel comes first. Salvation comes before transformation. In fact, one revelation that a lot of people make when they finally get the gospel, when the light bulb goes on and they finally understand the gospel and they make that trusting decision in Christ Jesus for their hope and for their salvation, one of the first things they realize is that all along in their life they've been doing it backwards. And that now they finally got it in the right order. They suddenly realized, I was working really hard to be good and to be righteous so that somehow God would accept me. When in fact the gospel is transformational in the exact reverse. The gospel comes first, then the transformation happens. Okay, and you can't miss that. Or you will be supremely frustrated in your life. Okay? And you can't miss that when you are sharing the gospel with people. You let them know... God came to you in your sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, Paul was doing nothing to attract the attention of God in a positive way. Right? He was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. He was an enemy of God's new kingdom. But the gospel comes first, and we have to understand this. The transformation of the gospel is that it comes first. Or the other realization that people have when they come to the gospel is they also make this one, and this is actually an, an, an even better realization, is that in fact, when the gospel first came to them and they received it, they look back on their life and they realize, much like Paul, is not only were they not trying to work and be good and be righteous to achieve the gospel, they were actually enemies of God their whole life. They never cared about church. They hated God. They hated the Bible. They thought Christians were stupid. And everything that they did was in offense to God, and yet still the gospel came to them and they got saved that Sunday, or that Monday, or that Tuesday, or in that small group, or on that corner, or whatever. The gospel came to them and they were saved then, and they had not done a thing to deserve it. But then the transformation happens. And they set aside the old life and they pick up the new life. Anyway, I can't spend too much more longer there. But that the gospel is transformational. It, the gospel transforms us, but the important thing here is the gospel comes first. You have to receive the gospel and the salvation and the righteousness of Christ. Then the transformation happens. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, it's not going to happen without the Lord and the Spirit. And it happens by beholding who? Christ Jesus. Right? Because the, the gospel is Christological. It's Christ-centered. You want to transform your life? You just keep looking clearer and clearer and clearer at the person of Jesus Christ, and the transformation will follow. That, that's discipleship, is just beholding Christ. And let the beholding of Christ transform you. Okay, ten. The... the the gospel is martial. I think this is important that we get in here too. Martial. I wanted them all to end in AL, okay? So the Bible is martial, but it's a good word because it means it has to do with war, okay? The gospel is about war, and we forget this too, that there's a war going on, and the gospel is God's war plan. It's the winning strategy in a cosmic war, and it's our weapon and defense in that war. Okay, where did that war start? Genesis 3, Eve and the serpent. Here's how far back the gospel goes. In Genesis 3, Eve has 
sinned and Adam has sinned and God has cursed the serpent. He said, you're going to crawl on your belly uh, and uh, be a despicable animal from now on. And, and, and then he turns to Adam and Eve and he, and, he, and he gives the curses to Adam and Eve about pain and childbearing and, and plants and all of those things and thorns and you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. But in, in Genesis 3.15, God says specifically to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman or he's saying to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is where the war started. And God's plan, his strategic plan for that war is the gospel. See, he said it right off the bat. He said there are going to be children of Eve and there are going to be children of Satan and the child of Eve is Jesus ultimately and he's going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel. This, this war, this cosmic war is going to come to a head on the cross. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Yeah, you're going to get him crucified, but when, he get, when, you get, when you get him crucified, he's going to defeat you. And so the gospel is martial, and we forget this, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit had a plan to deal with our sin before the foundation of the world. Before we even fell, this war was already won because Jesus would come and die and set us free. And so the gospel is God's war strategy. There's two kingdoms colliding in this world in our time, and the gospel moves the borders of one kingdom against the other. The kingdom of light pushes back the kingdom of darkness. The gospel is our weapon of this war, and that's why we must know it and have our roots deeply in it. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks Cephas, Simon Peter, the same Cephas in 1 Corinthians, he asks Peter, he says, who do you think that I am? And Peter replies, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you don't know that, Peter. God told you that. But he says in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is this rock? It's that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the rock. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Okay, so the gospel is martial. It is the strategy of God to overcome this world and to save us, and it is also your weapon of warfare in this world, and so you must know it so that you can do spiritual battle in this world. Eleven, it's eschatological. Had to get one really big word in there. It's hard to end them all in L without you know, going through the thesaurus. Um, that's just a fancy word that we use to talk about the end times or the end days, and I'll just cover on this really quickly. I'm essentially saying here that the gospel is not just about what it does for us in this life, the gospel is about what it does for us in the next life. And later on in this chapter, Paul focuses on the final transformation. He says in the end of chapter 15, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We're not going to all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. As so Paul is saying, this gospel, this good news for us, what Christ has done and, and, and the, the healing of the relationship with God and the averting of his wrath and the atonement and all of this stuff that's going on between the kingdom of light and darkness is not just about what's happening in our life today. The gospel is eschatological. It is about the days to come. It is about our future. In the future, we have victory over death. We get a new resurrection body. We have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We have tens of thousands of other future blessings that are all tied to the good news of what Christ has done. Twelfth, the gospel is missional. It has to be proclaimed. 
And so much could be said about the missional aspect of the gospel in this text, but I'll just point out that Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Paul is preaching the gospel, and we can't forget this. The gospel is transmitted by us. We speak the gospel. It's missional. There's a mission for us to do out in the world. The sowing that has to happen of the gospel for it to land on hearts and take roots. And I'll just point out Romans 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel is missional. We have to speak it, okay? Or 1 Corinthians 9, 22-23, one of my favorite verses in terms of the call to us to be missional to the world. Paul, speaking of how he reaches the Jew and the Gentile, the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak. He says, To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. Just love that sentence. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's what we're about here. We will become all things to all people that by all means we might reach them. Right? Shepherd's table, we need to do a supper here on Friday nights. We'll do that. VBS, we need to get 120 kids in here to tell them about Jesus and like just blow our volunteers out for a week. We'll do that. Right? We need to go and partner with another church to reach another town. Then we'll do that. We need to you know, have staff or run, you know, events here, we will do that. We will do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel because the gospel is missional. And lastly, it's invitational. And I almost finished on time. It's invitational. In the, and by that I mean, and we got to get this, and maybe it's inherent, but, but the gospel has to be responded to. It's an invitation that you have to actually accept And it's become a little bit popular recently to question the value of an overt gospel call, you know, like in the old days when they used to do an altar call and say, you know, if you're feeling like the Lord's Spirit is moving you to accept Jesus Christ, you know, walk the aisle and come forward and accept Jesus Christ. Today is the day of your salvation. And that's gone a little bit out of favor. And and there's some actually okay reasons as to why it's gone out of favor because it was being abused. You know, you're working people up in a big emotional state and then they come forward because they're having this big emotional response and it's more about the charisma of the speaker than it is about what the Holy Spirit is doing in their heart. So we have to be careful about that. But that does not deny the fact that there is an invitation that's taking place every time the Word of God is speaking. I'm making that invitation to you right now. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are still under the wrath of God, you do need to respond to the invitation. I'm not saying you have to walk an aisle. And you don't even necessarily have to be crying about it. But you have to respond to the invitation. A decision has to be made. The gospel is an invitation that has to be decisively received. And the Apostle Paul makes no trouble, has no trouble making that clear. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, and the word there is beg you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul is making the invitation, and he's saying, walk the aisle, make the decision, I'm begging you, hear the gospel, be reconciled to God. Because the gospel's invitational. It doesn't just automatically cover everybody. You have to actually understand that God is your creator, that you've rebelled against him, that he is due glory and righteousness that you cannot offer him because of your rebellion and because of your sin. 
No one is righteous, no, not one. And while we were still enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. And our hope to repair that relationship is all on the cross. Christ Jesus did everything that had to happen. All we have to do is trust him. That's what faith means. Trust Christ Jesus and respond to that and give your hope in God, in Christ Jesus. And say, God, I trust in nothing but what you have done through your son. I'm bankrupt. I got nothing to offer. I'm at the end of my rope. The knot's not even tied. I got nothing, but you have Christ, and I accept Christ for my salvation. And you have to respond to that. Peter says it also in Acts 2, 37 to 38, the first sermon that he preaches after Jesus is gone to everybody there in Jerusalem. He says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is an invitation, and then there's a response to that invitation that has to happen. So in summary, those are 13 of the most important things I could come up with about the gospel. Okay, and there's 13 more, and 13 more, and 13 more, and 13 more. But those are the 13 that I could come up with that I thought, what do we need to know about the gospel so that we can get our roots down deep into the deep-rooted gospel? It goes and goes and goes and goes. And I want us to be rooted in the gospel and to know these things and to dwell on them and meditate on them and take them home and think about them in our own lives and in the lives of others. And the reason that I want to do that is because a shallow gospel will not serve you well. A shallow gospel will leave you high and dry right when you need it most. It will leave you insecure and uncertain and unfulfilled and anxious and fearful and easily deceived and lacking in richness and lacking in righteousness. And if any of those words sound like you today and you're wondering, why am I insecure? Why am I uncertain? Why am I unfulfilled? Why is there no transformation? It's because your gospel is probably too shallow. And this whole message today was just to, just to peel back the curtain just a tiny little bit on how deep the soil of the gospel goes. You will never leave the gospel behind. It is the Christian life. We will be exploring the gospel for eternity. And so when people ask you, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? Can you answer with these types of things? Can you explain the gospel in your own words, the depths of it, the significance of it, the profoundness of it? Do you use it in spiritual warfare? Do you understand it and celebrate what it's done in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you realize that it is missional and that it's invitational? Has it impacted your life in a transformational way? Christianity is not just some nice tradition that we follow because Grandma did. The Gospel is all of these things I've talked about today, and it is so much more, it'll take my lifetime to even begin to understand it. The gospel and everything that it is has to become the air that we breathe. It has to become the food that we eat. It has to be the water that we drink. Christ is the gospel, and these and a thousand other reasons are why we treasure Christ Jesus. Do you treasure Christ as the gospel in your life? Let's pray.